0: You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, episode four. Welcome, listeners, to Thaisi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Malo Kumar. My guest today is Gayathri Sethi, a university professor based in the Atlanta area. We have a lot to discuss today, and so for the first time, we're bringing you a two-part episode. Welcome, Three.
1: Oh, delighted to be here.
0: How are you doing today?
1: Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you.
0: Yeah, I know, we have a lot to, lot to get into, so why don't we just go straight into it. Um, so you have an awesome upbringing, and one that kind of speaks to me as an international development practitioner who's worked all around Mm -hmm. Sub-Saharan Africa. So can you tell Mm -hmm. me a bit bit about how you grew up, where you grew up and what your story is?
1: Yes, I'd love to. This is one of my favorite things to talk about and I don't get to talk about it enough. So hmm, if I go on and on, bear with me. No problem. (laughs) My parents are originally from what is now Pakistan, right? So they are Punjabi. They are from Lahore and Rawalpindi respectively. And they, during the partition, relocated to India. When he was in his 20s, my father moved to East Africa to be a schoolteacher in a rural part of Tanzania. And he then later went to India, had an arranged marriage with my mother, and returned to Tanzania, and that's where I was born. I was born in Shinyanga, which is a very remote part in the Lake Victoria region of Tanzania. And I grew up in Tanzania until I was about 10 years old, And during that time, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a huge anti-Indian, anti-Asian sentiment um, that was sweeping through East Africa where we lived. Um, And many of the other South Asians went to Canada, relocated to the United Kingdom, and so on. But my father had always said, I'm going to be buried in Africa. And he actually didn't return to India. So we carried Indian passports, but we very much thought of ourselves as Tanzanians. And so this was a crisis when everyone else was fleeing for their lives. Um, He uh, relocated to Botswana, to Southern Africa. So most of my memories from age 10 onwards, um, I was educated and brought up in the capital city of Botswana, Haberone. And my mother, my brother, my nephews still reside there.
0: Wow. Um, That's fascinating. So... I mean, what what do you feel like was the impetus for your father to make such a strong connection to the African continent, whereas other people clearly, I don't know if it's temporary, I don't want to say that, but given the crisis, they immediately reverted back to India or went to another country that welcomed the Indian diaspora.
1: You know, he had at some point when I was a toddler um, come to study at Rutgers in the U.S. and lived there and had applied for his green card. But something about that experience led him back to Africa. I don't know the full details, and he has since passed on. So I can't ask him, but he did come back saying, I'm going to raise my children in Africa. I'm not raising them in America. Ironically, his daughter came to the States to go to college and is still here. So, <laughs> it wasn't his intention to raise us here Uh, and he also did not want to return to India and part of that had to do with his complex identity and I hope we'll talk about sort of intersectionality and how it plays out for some of us and in his identity he was not well off maybe barely middle class was semi-educated was the firstborn son of a family that had been refugees into India my grandfather had been in the Indian Army, but had been injured, so he was, you know, had a disability. But then my father was born um, and within the first year of his life got polio and had a disability. So if those of us listening in know anything about, at all about Indian culture, we are less than kind to people with disabilities, to say the least. So I think that was part of what drove him away in his, you know, youth. He just experienced so much discrimination. Um, due to his disability that when he came to East Africa, he for the first time felt, wow, I'm just a person. And he was a teacher and in East Africa, um, teachers receive a lot of respect on the same level as, as doctors. So he was Mualimu, which is Swahili for for teacher, and Mualimu Seti, and he took so much pride in that. And it really, he, I, I don't think he had ever experienced that kind of humanity and respect and belonging, uh, not even in his own home country. So I think that was a big part of it.
0: Mm -hmm. So I imagine for your entire family, once that anti-Indian sentiment kind of swept through East Africa was Mm -hmm. another existential crisis, really. Is it, it was you.
1: absolutely that. I think that if there's one thing about my life, I think I struggled with all my life, and I'm finally in my 40s coming to terms with some of it, is this notion of belonging, right? So I didn't belong in India. My Indian cousins and aunties met really well, but they used to make fun of the way we spoke Hindi. They didn't commend us for the fact that we were growing up in Africa and still spoke Hindi and understood Punjabi. They didn't commend us for that. They mocked us for it because we sounded like foreigners. You know, so, so I, when I went to visit the relatives in India, I always felt out of place. And in Africa, we were receiving messages that we, that Africa was for black Africans. And we kind of understood that message. Um, And then when we moved to Botswana, we realized that even though it's post-colonial, even though it's very cosmopolitan. And I went to school with people from all over the world, many of whom actually were part of this development world. You know, they were part of international agencies based in, in Botswana because apartheid was still a thing then when we relocated. So when we did that, you know, we just felt confused we didn't we didn't our passports didn't match the way that we looked like didn't match the way we sounded didn't match the way we felt on the inside you know
0: yeah absolutely yeah totally yes Mm -hmm. speaking of the Mm -hmm. choir I totally get that part (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so was that migration from Tanzania to Botswana a common one or is that something unique about your family as well
1: no, it was not common because everyone else, so, you know, in hushed tones, all the desi uncles and aunties would talk about how dangerous or like incidents of violence that were spurring up and just there was fear in the air. I remember I was 10 and I could remember, you know, the the, the usually festive dinner parties, you know, and, and, and going to the drive-in to see the latest Bollywood movie had turned into these like hushed tones, like adult-only conversations of fear and like anxiety. And many of them, you know, who those who had been, had no connections to India at All who had been brought as indentured labor were our our people who were most impacted directly because they really there's no going back to India for them. They don't really know where they came from. They were brought by the British, so they were the ones that were fleeing. They were selling up their businesses. They were giving away their belongings. They were having moving sales every weekend. You know, at the temple, at the gurdwara, you know, wherever we went, it was just a lot of that frenzy. And most of them were moving to either the UK or to Canada where they knew people.
0: And so what was it like moving to Botswana from Tanzania? Did people recognize you as an, you know, Indo-African or did you kind of have to reestablish that identity when you moved?
1: Well, you know, I was, I was a preteen. I was a tween. Um, I had a hard time because we didn't move there because we wanted to. And my father actually, if, it had been, if he had not been concerned about the safety of his children, he probably would have stayed. Um, so he wasn't delighted to be there. And he came as a civil servant. He was employed by the Botswana government. What confused us a lot was that we were termed expatriates. And you're familiar with that terminology.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But
1: all the other expatriates were white. And we were born. So we noticed that we didn't get the same kudos that other expatriates did. And so it was just really confusing. I'll say it that way, especially that time of life when you don't really even know what's happening. Um, However, one of the saving graces was that um, we belong to the Baha'i faith and wherever you go in the world, there's a Baha'i community. Uh, So our faith community welcomed us and there was a seamless transition there. And so we were able to have continuity of a certain kind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've I've often heard that religious communities are the first entryway for whichever kind of expatriate, immigrant family or communities that come in, especially those that don't speak the language. So I imagine going to Botswana is I it is a Swahili speaking country, right?
1: Not at all. It's, it's not Swahili okay. Which I tried, and I I am multilingual, so I speak Mm -hmm. many languages, and even though I was 11, when we moved to Botswana, and I tried to learn Sotswana, it's one of the hardest languages to learn,
0: Mm -hmm. and there are only
1: about 2 million people in the world that speak it, so it's not commonly spoken.
0: Yeah, so that must have been really difficult as well, speaking Hindi and Swahili, which are two of the most commonly spoken languages, Uh kind of going into this, like, micro language environment. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the Botswana are very welcoming. So we did feel a sense of welcome. And we, and it's also a very peaceful state. You don't hear much about Botswana when you hear this single story about Africa, you know, full of violence or drought or whatever, that negative story we hear about Africa. You don't usually hear about Botswana because we're kind of a peaceful calm.
0: Yeah. It's one of the golden children now. It's one of the only Uh, few countries in middle-income Properly middle income country in sub Saharan Africa, so
1: yeah, and people are very gregarious and welcoming, so in mm-hmm. that sense, we really did feel kind of a sense of relief.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was it like for are your siblings younger, or are they older than you?
1: Um, I have one sibling, and he's younger.
0: Okay, so what was it like for your younger brother?
1: I'm really not sure, I think he was younger than I, he just kind of went along with it, and he just kind of adjusted and made friends quickly he's very outgoing and he loved Botswana so much that he is living there now and he married a South African Indian from Durban and even both of them collectively decided to raise their children in mm-hmm. the capital city Botswana so that's their home base even though they studied the states they said ah we're not raising our kids here in America. <laughs> I was like, "Wait, that sounds familiar." Um, so they they returned before they started a family. They returned to Botswana, and thankfully, my mother, you know, and father were just able to enjoy those grandchildren.
0: And what about for your mother? I'm sure coming from India, not being part of that kind of like colonial lineage, that drew her as an indentured servant or whatever else, but through marriage, I'm sure that was a difficult adjustment for her to make twice.
1: Um, Several times. She didn't. She is a reluctant resident of Africa. She is one of the Indians that we, you know, like many of the aunties that we know and love, uh, really always dreamed of going back to India. She misses her home country. She misses her people. She misses the sights and sounds and flavors. And she just misses all that so much. And all her life, all my life throughout childhood, one of the things that was always a part of her storytelling was how much she missed India. But my father did not share that so i guess she you know being the woman being the mother being the wife made those compromises as per her culture and upbringing Mm -hmm. Um, so you know when my dad passed away about five years ago i said to her well this is your chance you can you've always wanted to move back to india she's like "Ah, i'm too old for that (laughs) yeah you know she goes back often to see her siblings Mm -hmm. and her, you know, family. But I think she became so accustomed to the peaceful and calm way of living in Botswana that she has a hard time when she's in India. She gets overwhelmed.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, So eventually you came to the United States for your education. So can you tell me what what was it like being an Indo-African studying in the States?
1: Um, confusing. Uh, so yeah, there's just lots of confusions and having to reinvent your identity because really, you know, who you are often depends where you are, right? So when people, when I'm in Botswana, I, the answer I give to, you know, like any questions around my identity are different than when I'm in the States. So when I came to the States, it was a, an opportunity for a fresh start. Like I didn't know these people, they didn't know me. However, I was an educator and always was, you know, sort of was inclined that way. So one of the first jobs I got was to work in a neighborhood school on the south side of Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago, and the reason I went there is because they gave me a full ride. Uh, I was uh, At the time, I guess, many of these elite universities were trying to uh, recruit students from sub-Saharan Africa because their diversity numbers were lacking, and so they figured out you know, giving scholarships. Um, and so that's kind of how I made it to the states, even though I had intended to study in the UK, and I had wanted to study international development in French. That had been my aspiration, Um, but I couldn't fund that, so I came to the States, and when I got there, I um, got a job, and it was working in a neighborhood school with second and third graders, many of whom were new to America and were still learning the language, and I was there. I would pull them out of language arts class and read with them one-on-one outside in the hallway, and that's when I would get the questions, what are you? Uh-huh. Mm. The young people, you <laughs> know, the children. They're like, if, yeah. single, and I was, I, if I was confused, they were confused by me. So I would, you know, hang out on the, on the playground with them and be their tutor. And they would constantly look at me and they have a puzzled look on their face. What are you? And that sent me into this whole other identity crisis because I didn't know how to answer that. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. especially not to 8, 9, or 10 year olds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had a variety of answers. I would just usually laugh it off. And I'd say, I'm Gayatri. You can call me Miss Gayatri if you want. Um, or, you know, I would come up with playful answers. But I think for them, I was neither black nor white. And their world was so black and white mm-hmm. that I was confusing.
0: So later on, and I guess this is kind of like more of an overview of your life as an educator. Can you mm-hmm. tell me what was it like to interact with students who are from sub-Saharan Africa, who I guess recognize you in a different way than most Americans and certainly most Indians would.
1: Well, yeah, you know, they, once we got past the, oh my goodness, you don't look like me, but you understand where I come from. Once we got past that, it was really, uh, you know, a, a way to bond, right? Like many of us, when we come to new places, we look for people who understand without us having to explain. Right, so we find those people who get it without us having to explain it, um, and so the students, you know, once I would tell them stories about where I grew up or what have you, were just so ready, ready for that because they were craving that as a gap in their, you know, new to America experience. Yeah. Um, And it's such a relief for me because I didn't have it in my peer group. I didn't meet other college students per se, you know, so I had, you know, what I noticed on many college campuses to this day, it happens because I'm a college level teacher now is that there are a lot of like affinity groups. You know, I never fit in with the South Asian, you know, student group because I wasn't from South Asia. And the African students association was all black people. So I didn't fit in there. The Black Students Association, most of my friends belonged to it, but I didn't believe in taking space there because I'm not black. So it it didn't matter where I looked. I couldn't easily fit into any one of those activities. And so I, you know, really had a friend group that belonged to all of those groups, but I didn't belong to any of them.
0: Um, You mentioned in one of your writings that you feel like your South Asian identity is unstable. That was the word that you used. Could you tell me a bit, like, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to have an unstable South Asian identity and how has that changed over the years?
1: Yeah. So I think when I was growing up, I didn't see myself as Indian, but my parents saw themselves very much as Indian Um, because I was growing up around Black people and I was the only brown person. So let's say the first school experience I ever had, you know, I was the only brown person in my first grade class. Um, And so to me, my sense was I was... I was just different, but I, I didn't, couldn't have the words to explain it. But at home, there was a very strong, we eat Indian food, we speak Hindi. My mother made it just such a big deal that we, growing up in Africa, needed to speak Hindi. When that school experience was challenging for me, linguistically and otherwise, they pretty much did their version of homeschooling and got a bunch of other Indian expatriates together and created a study group. So all our textbooks were imported from India. And all the moms and dads who were educators like use those textbooks to like school a group of us we you know it was dozens of us who had that same dilemma that we might eventually go back to India if our contracts weren't renewed and we want our children to be able to adjust to the school system in India so I was kind of brought up in this very confusing sense I had a connection into India I did the Indian curriculum during the early years of my education. But it was unstable because I was in Africa and my day-to-day life didn't match what I was seeing in those textbooks. I didn't see myself in them. Um, so from childhood, it was just a very like, skeptical identity that I had with respect to my indian mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was kind of something I've always carried. But I must be really clear that part of it had to do with when I went to India. So to visit cousins and relatives, it was yet again this feeling of, oh, I'm not from here. And most of all, I don't think like that. Like there was something about the way you think in order to be an Indian, to claim that identity that I didn't share. And so I felt very hesitant to claim that identity because I knew that. Deep in my heart, I knew that I didn't share that way of thinking and being in the world.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, a lot of what you've been speaking about is kind of the sense of fragility in life in, in Africa, because, you know, whether your contract's going to get renewed, whether there's going to be another yes. nationalistic crisis that'll sweep through and yes. then make this like kind of like a black Amer or a black African country only. Yes. Did, did you feel that you as a child, maybe your brother and the other children that were in your peer group, did you guys sense that fragility in your parents and did that affect you and how you yes. perceived yourself?
1: Oh yes, absolutely. It was very common. You know, it was it was a common topic of discussion. Is you know, is the contract going to be renewed? And especially when we went to India, we knew we weren't going on vacation. We knew we were going because we were waiting for the new contract to be renewed. We knew that one contract was up, and whether or not we were able to go back was hanging in the balance. So we had that feeling of hanging in the balance. At least I did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You yeah. know, but maybe because I was one of those children that actually paid attention to what the grown-ups were doing. <laughs> I just did. You know, yeah. I really paid attention to their energy, to their anxieties, to their talks. And so I was well aware of that. I was well aware that, you know, like we really wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. Like that feeling of wanting to go back, but not being sure you get to.
0: You're right. Did you get that sense from other expatriate groups, like the white, East Asian, and whichever other ethnic or racial expatriate groups? Did they also feel that kind of uncertainty or was it more guaranteed for them?
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they felt that uncertainty. But my guess is no. Mm-hmm. My guess is that to them, it was a different situation, because especially a lot of my high school, secondary school friends were from either the Netherlands or from Denmark. And so they came with their development agencies on contracts. And to them, it was like, you know, this is just a thing we do. This will be mm-hmm. three years, and then the family will move somewhere else. They might go to Senegal next, or they might, you know, so they were part of a different rhythm of things.
0: Yeah. It was, I guess, less, um, I don't know, invested in the uh-huh. country itself. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so then you eventually came to the States and you finished out your education. I know eventually you got a PhD. I
1: did.
0: Yeah, so can you tell me like, what what was kind of the evolution of wh- who you became as you started to place roots in America and kind of absorb whatever the American identity is? I mean, there's obviously very many of them, but how did your you know, framing of yourself change over those years?
1: Um, it changed, you know, drastically and continues to change, you know, so to fast forward, I end up marrying an African American. Uh, and it's almost been 20 years and we have children who are ablations, as I call them. black <laughs> And, you know, I, I am the mother of black children. Uh, in America. So this is something that is a fast-forward identity, and I can go back and say, well, when I first came to the U.S., the majority of the children I interacted with in the after-school program I used to volunteer at in the neighborhood schools and so on were African-American children. The people who connected with me and invited me in in the spirit of, come on in, oh, you're an international student? Come have Thanksgiving with us? African-American, right? So between my friend Sherry and the Colemans, you know, that was the first experience I had. My first Thanksgiving dinner as an international student, first time in America, was with a black family, and I learned very quickly the black and white version of America, and I was invited into the black America. And I feel very honored and humbled by that. Mm -hmm. And I began to develop something that I started to learn when I was growing up brown in Africa, is this, this notion of cultural humility. If there's something I learned being brown in in black Africa is that that's not my space, but I'm resident there. So I better show respect. So when I came to America, I learned that real quick too. It was transferable knowledge that I am so grateful I had because many immigrants to America do not have that
0: hmm yeah definitely so
1: they come in and become white adjacent and start to absorb themselves into and assimilate themselves into white american many many south asians do that like the majority of the ones that i know have done that
0: mm-hmm. their
1: world becomes very white well i was very fortunate blessed or otherwise just i don't know what the word is but that's not how it went down for me uh for me i was welcomed into black america i was invited to black churches i was invited to come and listen to my friend Chantel sing with her gospel group. I was invited to come to Sumter, South Carolina to go visit a new college friend who showed me that America and trusted me enough to invite me into those spaces. And that was where my identity began to shift as someone who was culturally humble towards black people.
0: Wow, that's a profound way to describe your assimilation into the United States. Well, I'm excited to continue the conversation in part two and to find out where that process has led you. Thank you to our listeners and be sure to check out part two of my conversation with Gayatri Sethi on They Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world.